You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right. Hey, fellow bipeds, here we are, season eight of Managing Leadership Anxiety. And, um, you know, quite honestly, as, as many of my long-term listeners know, I, I can't believe who I get to talk to on this show. That's really be the delight of the podcast is just getting to meet some amazing people. And I've been really excited uh, to introduce uh, Dr. Felicia Harris, uh, because I know probably uh, many of our podcast listeners may not know Dr. Harris, but she just released a book in September. It's called First in the Family, Biblical Truths for Cycle Breakers. And uh, I've been following Dr. Harris on Twitter for a while, then I chased that book down. And I was really interested in having her on the show because as you know, a lot of what we do in anxiety management is getting back to our family of origin, the scripts that we were raised in, the family propaganda. You know, how do we how do we filter our experiences to really get to the assets that we want to keep, but also manage some of the damaging or, or liabilities that we want to not pass on? And uh, Dr. Harris is a PhD in communications, and I'm also always fascinated to to interview somebody who specializes in communication particularly when it's a woman and particularly when it's a person of color, because I just think we cannot get enough nowadays education and, and uh, help having people where we can listen to their experience. The other thing I got to say about Felicia, she's, she's been in a book club with Michelle Obama. And what's magnificent about this is it's not that Felicia joined Michelle Obama's book club. It's that President Obama's wife joined Felicia's uh, book club. What an incredible thing. So Dr. Harris, welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Well, before we get to the book, which I really want to get to, tell us about this book club. How did this happen? Uh, Michelle Obama comes into the room and joins you for your book club. Oh, man. You know, I'm in a book club called HTX Book and Brunch, and we are a group, a very diverse group of millennial women, uh, working women in Houston, Texas, and we are on social media. That's what we do. And so we actually created an Instagram account to do what the, the, the people call shoot their shot with authors, because we have a fascination with meeting authors and talking to authors of our favorite books. And so, of course, when Michelle Obama's book came out becoming, a couple of the book club members went to go see her in Dallas. And then we had this bright idea like, hey, let's just slide in Michelle Obama's DMs and see <laughs> if she'll come to brunch with us. Because we've used this strategy before, never on someone of that high profile, sure. but we were like, why not? Why not? Sure. So we uh, were in our group, me strategizing who's going to post a picture, what would the caption be? And lo and behold, at the same time, her publisher was actually running a book club contest for you know her to come out and have tickets for the book clubs to come see her on this tour. And they had already looked at our book club. And so when we shot our shot and invited her to come for brunch, then I guess her PR team got extremely excited because they were like, oh, we already, you know, we were already on their radar. And then we asked and she had a Houston stop on the tour. And next thing we know, we were, you know, I don't know if I can even say all the details because we had to sign. Right. 
we had to sign it away. We were sworn to secrecy and then we were rushed into a private location and we were able to sit with Mrs. Obama for about two and a half hours for brunch. And then we also got to attend her book stop that night in Houston. So an incredible experience, one that I will not soon forget. <laughs> I, I wonder what it's like when you meet somebody who, who's such a, um, uh, such a huge international figure, but also probably for you also just such a, a formidable presence. How do you, um, you know, obviously this podcast is on managing anxiety. How do you yeah. not just fangirl all over someone like that and actually have a human to human conversation? You know, I think I, a lot of my managing anxiety is really kind of faking it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't, I mean, that's just true authenticity is sometimes you just got to fake it till you make yeah. it. And I think, especially for us as a book club, we were able to manage our anxiety before the fact because we met up several times and cried and like freaked out and screamed the night before. And then when it was time to walk in and go past, you know, Secret Service, we were all like, okay, game face is on. We had our questions prepared. We we were ready to go. Um, And so we just kind of went there. But I will tell you, as soon as she left, when the moment was over, as soon as she walked out of the room, we all just like lost it. I mean, it was like two and a half hours of looking like we were so pulled together. And as soon as she left, like we were crying, we were like shaking, we were like, oh, you know, so I think it was just faking it for a little bit. And then also preparation is key. Ah, it's wonderful. Well, Felicia, let's get to your first, uh, I I can't say your first published book because you've done quite a bit of academic work, but your first like pop level book, the book's called First in the Family. Yeah. Biblical Truths for Cycle Breakers. Tell us why you wrote this topic. The the honest to God answer is that God told me to write this book. And I say that every chance that I get because I, I never want to um I never want to diminish being spirit led in our creative pursuits. Because I think, especially as a writer, I just did uh, a book club, a book study about for, for writers, and there are so many stories that we want to write and so many things that we want to tell, you know, so many stories we want to tell, but ultimately it comes down to God having the final say. And there are also stories that we don't want to tell, which I think this book um, kind of falls into that category, but it really is about our surrender and being obedient. And sometimes you're called to do things that may make you uncomfortable and you just have to trust God. And so with this book, that was one of them. I've always been a writer. Like you said, I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to write fiction and then life had its way and I became an academic. And I've written so many academic articles and chapters and contributed to other books. Um, And I just, you know, didn't know if this would happen for me. And then one day through prayer and life circumstances, God revealed to me that this was the book that he wanted me to write. And I kind of was like, oh, this is what we're doing. (laughs) You want me to talk about, you know, the hardest parts of my life. You know, you want me to write about something that a lot of people may not see eye to eye with me or something that will possibly be misconstrued as controversial because family is such a taboo topic to talk about in the way that I talk about it in my book. But it was very clear that this is where he was leading me. And so I sat down and, and poured it out and I got busy about the work. And also because through my personal life and work in ministry, it was just an area of my life that God 
had me working in already. And so I see my book as a complementary resource to the work that I was already doing in real life as a college professor, as a prayer partner, as someone who pours into people who deal with imperfect families all the time. Now I have this resource and I can say, I wrote, I wrote the book about it and I can give you this resource um, that really encapsulates everything that God has showed me in this area. Yeah, it's interesting. At what age were you when you first started feeling free to dig into your upbringing and some of the generational traits in your family? Wow. I I wouldn't say I was free, but I will say (laughs) it began, uh, I want to say probably the first year of my PhD program. So I was uh, 23 or 24 or so, maybe. Um, and And it was pulled out. It was not an area that I wanted to go into, just like most people, you know, talking about your family experiences is extremely difficult, especially when they can be painful or when they, when you feel like they don't live up to the ideal image that society says your family is supposed to look like. So it was through therapy to manage anxiety. Actually, I started seeing a counselor because I was diagnosed with anxiety in my graduate program. And I broke out into tears crying about my uh, diagnosis because I was, I'm I'm a woman of faith. I cannot be anxious. The Bible says, you know, all of those things. And my doctor was like, you definitely have anxiety. (laughs) So I ended up seeing a therapist and she was, you know, just asking questions. What's going on in your life? What's Where is this coming from? Why are you feeling overwhelmed? And once we began to speak at the time, my mother was living with me and I write about this in the book. And it was so hard for me to even just say, I don't want my mom to be living with me. She had to pull it out. And even, and then I talk about in the book how it took a couple of sessions of me and her going back and forth and back and forth um, before I could even just admit that the issue was I didn't I didn't want my mom to be living with me or, you know, my mom living with me in the situation with my family was contributing to this sense of overwhelm and just, I mean, so much anxiety, borderline depression at the time. And from there, we began to unpack once I finally had that, what they call that breakthrough moment in therapy, a couple sessions in where you're just, you know, you have that epiphany and you're crying and you're like, okay, we're here. Now, what do we do? And so that's when we begin to do the work that eventually led toward, you know, feeling free. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you describe it, Felicia. I I think it's, I think a lot of people can relate the the initial resistance to look into it. And then it feels like stage two is like the pain Mm -hmm. and then comes the freedom. And I wonder if that's why more people aren't willing to do this work is is the resistance and the pain, yeah. I think, is what puts them off and they, they don't see that the freedom can come. And even the guilt. And that that's what I talk about in in the book. I say, because my, my therapist was a white woman and she was a lesbian and I was a young black woman. <laughs> and so, of course, in my mind, just being in the room, I'm thinking, oh, we don't, you know, what are we going to talk about? What do we have in common? You don't get where I'm coming from or, you know, whatever the case may be. And I talk about how I just kind of shut down. As soon as she started talking about my mom, I'm like, hold on now. You know, you're not going to talk about my mom yeah, and that defensive mechanism. And and I talk about it in a moment, you know, I just kind of like shut down and yelled, I'm black. You don't get it. I'm black. And I came back in another session and I said, you know, what I really meant when I say I'm black is that my mother has sacrificed so much 
to be a woman raising a Black family in America and to then have conflict with her instead of just having overwhelming gratitude for everything that she has endured. It is really hard to live in that tension, to want to honor your parents and honor your family and and everything that is broken in the world around us. But then also being able to say, you did your best, we did our best, but maybe that was not good enough. It's really, really hard. (laughs) And so my therapist was able to kind of help me get to that space and, and be able to have that language to be able to say, you know, I don't have to feel guilty about saying I love my mom and I am so grateful for everything um, that my mom and my siblings have endured to pave the way for me in order to be a cycle breaker. But at the same time, I can acknowledge that it was not perfect and there was pain and it is what it is, you know, and I have to be able to deal with all of the things that happened and all of the things that we overcame overcame in order to get to the future that God has for me. Yeah. I I think you can actually be really helpful for us here, Felicia, because I, I think the great misunderstanding in doing this kind of work that you're teaching us about, I think the misunderstanding is that people think it's about blame or ingratitude. Yeah. And I think it really is more about the way you as a child made meaning out of things. Like, so for example, in my case, I was diagnosed, I went to counseling a few years ago and my therapist diagnosed me as an HSP. I said, what's an HSP? And he said, oh, it's a highly sensitive person. You feel deeply. And I just immediately burst into tears. He's like, yeah, I think, I think that's you. And, and so, of course. Yeah, really helpful for me to realize I was a sensitive kid. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's less about blaming somebody for what they said or did or didn't do. And it's more about what meaning did I make as a kid yeah. when I felt powerless? Yeah. And then how has that meaning kept me in its grip as an adult? Yeah. You write about cycle breaking. I wonder if you might be willing to share with us some of the cycles you talked about in the book that you've worked on. Man, there are a lot. I mean, I, I come from... I can I can't speak to my expansive family history, which I think a lot of people can relate to, especially I know like a lot of the students that I serve, a lot of the black friends that I have, because our family story only goes back as you know so far. And yeah. within that, there's also so much intentional kind of separation. So some of the cycles, who even knows where they went back from? But I mean, I talk about addiction, I talk about abuse. I talk about um, silence, shaming. Those are some of the cycles that I know that I've done a lot of work to be free from or to intentionally interrupt. Um, Addiction is one that is really prevalent in my family. Abuse is one as well. And of course, these are kind of not the root problems. (laughs) problems. <laughs> These are ways that people are coping with other root issues of mental mental anxiety, mood disorders, different things of that nature, different traumas that have been experienced, how we manage trauma that become a cycle. And so being able to interrupt those cycles and say, okay, I have experienced trauma, but I'm deciding to deal with it in a different way than the what I've seen play out over and over again, which is turning to this or turning to that. Um, those are 
a lot of the cycles that I talk about in the book. And and, and I won't share all of it because I, I was told that my book probably should have had a content warning or a trigger warning. And and in the, the hindsight, I was like, man, I should have, because within a couple of pages, I'm talking about some really heavy things. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm not naive enough to believe that people don't have really dark and heavy things in their families. So I talk about a lot of them. <laughs> and I also bring them up to the, in the Bible and in the word, which kind of helps, I think, a little bit. I think it's a gift because, you know, Dr. Kurt Thompson, the psychiatrist famously says, we name things to tame things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if, if we are going to look at generational traits and then try to I'm sorry, what was the word you used? You didn't say break the pattern. Was it disrupt the pattern? You interrupt, interrupt. Interrupt. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful way to put it. Interrupt the pattern. Let the gospel seep in mm-hmm. uh, rather than just transmit it down. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how else you do it other than going first and giving us a glimpse in, into your own journey and, yeah. and what you've had to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. What's it been like for your extended family as you write about these things? Uh, it hasn't been... It hasn't been all rainbows. (laughs) It's been very difficult. I think um, it's been difficult for me writing. It was very difficult writing it. It was difficult to tell them that I was writing it. It's been difficult to for them for some of them to read it or hear me talk about some of the things that I share in the book. I know a couple of family members have not read the book. They have it, but they are hesitant to even open the book because they just don't want to go back to some of the the places that are, you know, open and <laughs> the conversations that are reignited in the pages of the book, which I completely understand. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's been a, a challenge, um, but I am encouraged by the feedback. I am encouraged by the people that I know that have read the book and who come to me, you know, teary eyed and say, oh, you went there. And that has been such a humbling, just counter experience, because I know it's impossible to make everyone happy. But I know what God called me to do, because this is a place that this is a part of our lives that needs more traction, you know, talking about the dark side of family. I don't know any other way to describe it. We talk so much and about ways to make our family units healthier, happier, stick it out. There's this model family dialogue that is pervasive and that can be so overwhelming and disheartening when that is not your reality. And we rarely talk about the opposite end. And so I was like, if that's what you want me to do, Lord, you know, if we're going to go there, I'll go there. And I knew where I was going. You know, that's what the initial kind of pushback when I I knew I was writing this book with God was like, you want me to go there? Because, okay, but I I knew where we were going. I was very clear. I just didn't know why it had to be me. (laughs) But I I said, yes. Yeah, you mentioned four themes that you explored. I'm just going to ask you about two of them. So you sure. mentioned abuse abuse and addiction, and yeah. I'm not going to ask about those, but I am curious about silence and shaming. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the best thing at this point, Felicia, is to play a game of family feud where you can pass or play. <laughs> but um, I think what's really helpful for our listeners is the idea of how silence can be paralyzing. Yeah. 
and that most families have things that happen that they agree not to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it becomes patterns. And some of those things aren't necessarily that powerful or dangerous, but then some really are. I wonder if you might give us an example or two of how silence was and impacted you as you did some of this work. Yeah, I, I write in the book that the trauma that my family experienced felt like it was everywhere and nowhere at all. Because when you're carrying the burden of even knowing, even if some of these things don't happen directly to you, we know it happens to the family and people are impacted. So if there's abuse or addiction, even if it's in the next room over, you find yourself dealing with, do I talk about this? Do I tell someone? Do I not tell someone? You know, and it seems like, okay, well, it's not impacting you, but it is impacting you and you're carrying it with you. So then you do deal with that silence, which can be so it can just be so dark at times. It can be so limiting in terms of what you're able to do. And and that was what I was trying to get at with people who have secrets, family secrets or relational secrets. And it feels like it's everywhere and nowhere at all. It's because you see it everywhere. You're triggered by those secrets in school and at work. And someone can say something or do something and you want so badly to speak up or share your experience or be honest, but then you feel like you can't. So it's nowhere and no one knows what you're dealing with, but it's everywhere at the same time because you're carrying it with you. And that is something that I really want to disrupt because something that I've found as a cycle breaker and a truth teller uh, in my career um, is that once you break that silence, that's actually the afterword of my book is talking about telling these powerful stories. Once you break that silence, you often find that most people around you can either relate or have been there or are dealing with the same exact thing. And you find healing in that community and in telling your truth. And you're like, man, I was holding on to that for years, for years. And I could have just said something and it would have been that simple, (laughs) you know, that simple to start this path toward healing. But we just have this culture of silence And, and the shaming comes either from within your family system or externally. You know, why would you say that? Why would you, that's nobody's business. Um, you you don't have to go tell that, you know, that kind of like, just keep it to yourself, just get over it, just pray about it. Uh, you don't want to have this bad reputation. Why would you have people thinking that about the family? That kind of shaming for people who are trying to be on a path toward healing is also something that I want to intentionally disrupt as well. Um, so yeah, those those are very important for me in my personal ministry and in my career to just really tell people, tell the truth, don't be silent, and don't worry about being shamed because most likely you're not the only one. Yeah, thanks for that, Felicia. As I was listening to you, what, what was going through my mind is, is the way that silence and shame are cousins. Mm-hmm. And when you talked about in your afterwards sharing some of these things and then people people no longer feel alone and so therefore the shame has less grip on them. I think that's a really powerful mm-hmm. and simple tool. Yeah. It, it feels to me like the misnomer of the work that you're doing is, is people might listen to this and say, oh, that's I'm really happy for her, but I could never do that. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like people believe the lie that they can compartmentalize that 
rather than what's really true is is these things that kind of haunt you they show up in the workplace whether you want them to or not oh gosh uh, the, the story <laughs> you tell yourself and, and yeah tell, tell just a little bit about that yeah i i don't know why we do that <laughs> I don't know why we do that. And I, I talk about that a lot in my book, too, because even when I had a therapist for graduate school, but after I graduated and started my career, when I came and, you know, we were talking about all the things that were going on at my job. And I just realized I really didn't like people. I was not a people person. And as my therapist began to my current therapist now began to unpack my family story, she was like, oh, you don't have experience with people because you shut people out because you don't want to get to know people. And, you know, so she was able to really connect what was happening in my professional life at work with my family story and my upbringing in a way that I could have never put two and two together. Um, so I, I don't know why people think that we can just push these things down. And I think in the book, I call it, um, we just try to make do, you know, we just try to let things work themselves out, but they rarely do. It just doesn't work like that. We just push things down and push things down. And then, as you know, I'm pretty sure you've discussed it before. Something triggers us and we mm -hmm. have an explosion. And, right. and for a while, we'll say, oh, I don't know where that could have come from. I don't know. That's right. just so unlike right. me. And then after a while, you're like, no, this is very much like it's me. It's like <laughs> yeah, what I do every time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know why we do that. Yeah. And then you're forced to either minimize it or blame someone. Like you, you either have to look in the mirror. That that was my experience is at some point you get tired of yourself or or you get to the end of yourself. And yeah. now you've got a decision. Am I going to hide, minimize, blame, or am I going to look in the mirror and face it, which is really hard yeah. to do. I think it's really, I really like the way that you put it, the end of yourself. Because I think that's kind and I, I really hate that it has to be this way. And that's one of the reasons why I was, I was a little resistant, but so willing to write this book because mm. it's almost like, you know, when you hit rock bottom, people who are dealing with trauma, unfortunately, oftentimes, you know, you have to hit like rock bottom, anxiety, depression. Um, I was just reading another powerful book by Juanita Rasmus, and she talks about how she just, you know, was working in ministry and then boom, out of nowhere, hit in a crazy depressive mode that lasted for weeks and months. And then it's from there that you rebuild and you're like, okay, now I really actually have to deal with this stuff. And I would love to see people not have to hit that absolute rock bottom and I mean, at the time in graduate school, when I ended up going to therapy, I wasn't quite at rock bottom yet, but I was on the way. I mean, I was diagnosed with anxiety. I was contemplating dropping out. I didn't know what I was going to do. And that was the only reason why I started doing this work, which it shouldn't have to be that way. <laughs> you know, it yeah. just shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah, we want a gospel. We want a resurrection gospel. We just don't want the dying part. <sighs> we want to skip bypass the death. I mean, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. You talk about uh, families in the Bible. I'll, I'll never forget. I, I I did a graduate degree in a seminary, and we had chapel, and um, we went. We had chapel. I, I don't remember. Maybe a couple of days a week. And I love chapel. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a church fanatic. And uh, I remember this group got up, and they had um, this back in the '90s, Felicia, and and I don't know how much still today, but back then, th this so called biblical family values was everything. It was like a 
massive idol in church culture, biblical family values. So this this group got up and they just compiled like a spoken word, almost a rap, and just <laughs> sifted together all of the messed up crappy families in the Bible mm-hmm. and all of the terrible things Jesus said that went against biblical family. You know, if you don't hate your mother and father, things like that. It was a wonderful monologue. Yeah. But that's part of the myth, isn't it? That there's such a thing as a Christian family and that therefore means everything's well and so on. Talk to us about that. It's not even just part of the myth. It is the myth. I mean, that is is a message that I think I will preach (laughs) for the foreseeable future, that it is such a myth. And I think that was what really was invigorating about working on this book, even when I was getting, before I even knew that I was going to work on the book, was in my own personal time with God, in my own questioning God about my own family. When I was broken and crying and like, why isn't my family perfect? And God said, okay, come meet me in the word. And I was like, show me how to be perfect. And I'm opening the Bible and it's like, there is no perfect family. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's not there. It just, I, I can't, You can't find it. This ideal that we have put on a pedestal of the mom, the dad, the 2.5 kids, the dog, and they're in harmony and they eat around the table every night. When you look at families in the Bible, there is everything except that. There literally is every single thing except for that image. And that was such a liberating moment for me personally in my own life because I was like, oh, God. Thank you for making this clear to me because I I spent so many years craving something that was not even real, craving an Mm. idol, craving something that was made up by man. And I don't know how it became such a common thing in church spaces when when you open the Bible from the very beginning in Genesis. And that was my favorite part of writing this book is like from the very beginning, we have really interesting family drama and trauma. Like we have murder right out the gate. They have brothers murdering each other right out of the gate. So, and like, how do we then get to a point where we're afraid to talk about the smaller conflicts that we're dealing with? We're so ashamed of like the person who drinks too much or these really little things, the argument that we had at Christmas. And we're just like, oh, this is so unbearable. When you look in the word and it's, I mean... (laughs) It's that's my favorite part of this book. I promise it was like really kind of like probably the rap that you talked about. And then even uh, chapter, I think, four, when I look at the life of Jesus and the things that Jesus said and what he actually does with his life when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth and his relatives are giving him a hard time. And he's like, all right, I'm out. (laughs) And I was like, that's such a liberatory moment for so many people because, you know, we're trying to make something happen that most likely it's just so far-fetched from reality. And as always, Jesus gives us an example, but somehow it's been dismissed from the narrative. He he gives us an example on how to deal with this. So Yeah. Yeah. The other profound thing in seminary for me, uh, many profound moments, but um, <laughs> I had a Black New Testament professor named Kippololia. And um, he was brand new to our seminary and I think fairly new to teaching. He didn't hadn't had his doctorate that long and sign up for his class. And he looks around the room. We were predominantly white. We, we were diverse, but predominantly for sure, majority culture was white. And Dr. Alolia looks at the room and he's, <laughs> he says, well, 
I'll tell you what you don't need is another book written by a white guy <laughs> and uh, took us on a journey of liberation theology. Yeah. We, we began, I think we began with James Cone. I'm trying to remember. No, no, we began with uh, Gutero, Gust, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and the South American Catholic priests. Yeah. Then we went up to James Cone. We did some Native American theology. We did some womanist theology, Felicia. Mm-hmm. Um um, uh, uh, Serena Williams, uh, the, the name wrong. It's got, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Williams is the last name, but it was Sisters in the Wilderness. Yes. The story of Hagar, the first person in the Bible to name God. Yeah. And, um, I think, I think that that was 1998. I think for me, that was the first time I recognized privilege. Um, the idea that I was majority culture, center of power, reading, a uh, holy text written by minority culture on the on the sidelines of power. Um, I did my own journey after that as an Australian into Aboriginal theology, and it was mind blowing to me because uh, that was much closer to home for me. Uh, mm-hmm. The Aboriginal theologian Anne Patel Gray that I was reading uh, angrily critiquing the faith I was raised in mm-hmm. in every way that was true and right. Yeah. This is my very long winded way of of. Uh, wanting to know from you, what as a black woman, what do you think a white man like me needs to know that I may not know? <laughs> I don't know if your readers can hear, but I'm smiling from ear to ear. I think that's important for them to know because you're that's... not glaring at me angrily. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I think you know that's one of my favorite questions to hear. Is you know. As a white man, what, we don't hear that. I don't hear that hardly enough, I think. Mm. Um, and, and I'm excited to hear you talk about that because obviously I haven't gone to seminary. And I'm, I, like I said, I'm a millennial and I'm part of what a lot of the people are calling more widely right now, this deconstructionist kind of mm-hmm. moment. Um, And that's really a lot of people are not as well read. Right. We haven't done the James Cone and so on and so forth. The Sisters in the Wilderness. But I will say I was starting that journey at the exact time that I got the contract for this book. The exact day, actually, that I met with a publisher, I brought in um, kind of like a guest speaker to my small group. And she sent us a reading list that was like a mile long because we had started going down this path of man, once you start pulling the thread, like I said about family, where you look at the word and you're like really looking at what the Bible says and you're looking at what you're taught and you're like, this doesn't really add up. Then you start thinking, well, what else were we taught that doesn't really add up (laughs) with the word of God or even the context? And so you start pulling at that thread and that's what leads to all of these other, you know, theological interpretations and they are so empowering. And so I think, you know, just any, what I would like for you to know as a white man is such a, such a good question is, you know, it is really as bad as people say that it is like when people are talking and telling their truths, things really are that bad and probably even worse, (laughs) you know, probably even worse because A lot of the times when we're sharing our stories, like in my book, for example, still very mindful of the politics of how my story will be perceived. And that's something I write about in the afterward is that I get it now as an older black woman, the secrecy and the silence and the shaming that came with being a black child 
was not always related to, I don't want you to tell anybody, but when we tell our stories, this is what can happen on the other end of it. And I'm very mindful of that, that if I go out into the world and say, my father did this, he's a black man and my mom's a black woman and I'm a black girl. And that my story can have a very different chain of events to happen than someone else's. So I think it's so important to just listen and really be mindful to what people have to say and, and read the stories and, and educate and say, okay, it really is that bad. Don't even question it for a second. Not even a moment. Is it that bad? It's that bad and it's worse. It's absolutely worse. Um, I think that's the, that's just the key takeaway. I don't know. Does that make sense? That Oh, you know? it's fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I want to make sure I'm hearing you right too, because I think if I'm hearing you right, I think this is something we should just put a pin on. Are you suggesting that part of when you share your experience with somebody who's never had that experience. I, I remember when I was teaching my 16-year-old to drive, there was an African-American a female preacher in town. She was teaching her 16-year-old to drive. And our experiences were radically different. Absolutely. Of course. Um, and she, she would check every time he went out to drive, she would check every light on the car. Mm-hmm. All I had done with my son is say, 10 and 2, do what he says, mm-hmm. you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so j- just the, uh, are you saying, Felicia, that is there part of you when you share your experience that you feel the anxiety of managing how I receive it? Like oh, are yeah. you having to shapeshift? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To make sure that I can, it's palatable or something to me, so I'll believe it. Or Not even just palatable, but I think there's a, because I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not really a person who wants to be palatable, but I do. I'm, I'm mindful, right? I'm mindful. And I, yeah. and like, and I even write in the book, you know, I say it was hard for me to tell my white woman therapist about issues with my black mama. And, mm. and that a part of that was like, cause I know the perception, you know, I know how things could look. And even when you're growing up, like, I know how, how bad this can escalate, like this can get you know, bad. And then even in the end, and say in the book, even writing my book, I was still mindful of how people were perceived because Black people can't talk about their mamas. You know, it's just, or you, you can't, you know, we could publish something and you wouldn't even believe law enforcement could get involved. Like, things really can be exacerbated. And, and yeah. you say one thing, trying to speak truth to power, and you're dealing with a series of consequences that like I said, you know, your white colleagues or your white ministry partners could never even imagine. They can't even fathom. And I think sometimes because I, I know some people call it like call, kind of call it like a white imagination. It's like you in your imagination, you can't even imagine the reality that other people are experiencing. So instead of saying, okay, this is a story about how things go bad and I'm listening to the story, you're like, that couldn't possibly be true because it just sounds so far-fetched. But people are really living it and worse. You know, it's it's even worse than what we care to share, just depending on the context, the venue, the relationship. Um, so I, I would just appreciate more when, you know, when you have allies or people who are saying, especially post George Floyd, like I'm listening, I'm learning, but they're listening and they're, they're not believing. They're saying, Mm -hmm. "Mm, that may be a little bit, I don't know if it's really that bad or maybe they're just trying, it's 
no, it's that bad. Believe, believe black women as they've said so often in the past couple of years. Let me run something by you. Let me take a risk with you, Felicia. I I was a trauma and hospice chaplain, very young age. Um, When I stepped into those rooms, I'd never seen a dead body before. I was completely green and I stumbled my way into it. And the first three months of chaplaincy, if I had to make a blanket statement, I'd say that everything I ever said to anyone was to calm myself. It wasn't for them. Mm. I thought it was for them. I was not aware that I couldn't handle being in a room with death Mm -hmm. and grief. And as the chaplain, as so-called God's representative, when someone's screaming at me, how could God allow this to happen? I'm believing as a cognitive person that they're actually asking me a question. I wasn't even wise enough to realize they're just in shock and they're not looking for an answer. Here's where I'm going with this. What I had to learn, death is this massive, overwhelming thing that none of us can get our mind around. But because we can't handle that, we shrink it down to a palatable size. Mm -hmm. And we do that by, by what you like, I'm stumbling over my words, but as I hear you talk about how people kind of judge your story, Mm -hmm. it feels, it feels parallel to me about how people say stupid things in the face of de- death mm-hmm. and grief. God mm-hmm. God needed an angel in heaven. The Christianese. Or, I think I talk about that yeah. in my book. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that the same? <laughs> is, there, a, is there a parallel there where, where the, the black female experience... Absolutely. It, one, I, that, that one, As a white guy, I'm like, oh, I can't handle it. So let me say, oh, wait a minute. Everyone has their cross to bear. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus is near the brokenhearted. I mean, it it just goes on and on. And I talk about that in the book as well. And I talk about being spiritually gaslit. I mean, when God gave me this book, I was like, me, you really want me to do this? Because a lot of people don't want to have that conversation about how verses and passages in scripture are even twisted around to be um, used against people, to have them complicit in their own abuse, in their own oppression. And you have people say things like, oh, blessed are the peacemakers, as if you're speaking out or you're um, saying, no, I won't allow you to harm me in this way is disrupting the peace. When in reality, you have no peace. There is no peace to be found here. Um, This idea that oppression is somehow a blessing, uh, (laughs) that we, you know, oh, you God thought you were strong enough. He only puts that on you because he knows you're you're strong enough to endure all this. And, you know, one of the things that I've done in some of my book talks with a lot of women of color and black women is really say you have to liberate yourself from this idea that suffering is something that God wants us to do. He does not want us to suffer and deal with these things to prove that we are worthy Christians. He took it all on the cross. And so when people try to, you know, placate you with these scriptures and these verses and these passages or different things to just kind of minimize how we deal with racism and sexism and patriarchy and the intentional disruption of the black family and the school to prison pipeline and all of these things that were for to just accept and pray about, you know, it's like, "Mm, that's not the life that God wanted for us. He says it again and again in this word. He came to give us life more abundantly. This is not it. So, you know, you can feel that that's kind of like my uh, underlying message. And some people even would go as far as to say this ideal family unit 
is a byproduct of white patriarchy. And so you have women like me, black women, single mom, have a son, (laughs) you know what I mean? And my family unit is somehow perceived as less than when in fact, my family dynamic is so happy, so healthy. It's the most wholesome that I've experienced with just me and my son. And there's no husband here right now, as of now. (laughs) But, you know, and some people will have you, oh, you know, and they say things like, just wait on your husband or whatever, as if that's what will make my family complete, as if it's not already there. So that's been kind of like my pushing back. It's like, let's push back against that. And let's be really aware of the ways that we, our oppression, our suffering, and our abuse in a family context is being dismissed and being overlooked (laughs) when we can be empowered to liberate ourselves from that. Yeah. Yeah. What an incredible gift. Yeah. I I have asked this question a number of times over a number of different people. I always, there's always something to learn. Mm -hmm. I think the burden on my side of the microphone is until it costs us something, nothing will change. Like even education is a great step, but somehow we have to move into sacrifice I think in order for systems and structures to change. Yeah. I I remember asking this question a couple of years ago of a guest and, um, she mocked the term racial reconciliation. That was very profound for me because she, she was saying, what is there to reconcile? Like the idea that there's an equal disparity idea. Right. And so I've never used that term since that was helpful for us. Like, oh, because I used to use the term, we need to do racial reconciliation. She's like, Who's reconciling with who? Like yeah. there's an oppression then. Yeah. Um, so I think every, I appreciate you being willing to answer and, and trust me with your answer. And yeah. I, I think the burden on, on my side of the microphone, Felicia, is we, we have to keep asking. We, we, and then we have to figure out, okay, what must we do mm-hmm. uh, that, that's different? I, I do though want to just shift gears here. You mentioned your son. Do you mind me asking how old your son is? He's 14. He just oh, turned wow. 14. Two days ago. (laughs) What a great age, by the way. Oh, well, Um, (laughs) we'll see about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, sure. But I I think just as we, you know, we're we're inching our way into the anxiety gauntlet to to wrap up here. But I think just to go back to your book, boy, you talk about another reason to do the work that you're advocating for is for the next generation. Absolutely. The hard work that you're doing for his sake is amazing. he He was a turning point. He, he was absolutely the turning point in my life. I think becoming a parent and at the same time when I was going through all of this stuff, he was two or three years old, but really trying to reconcile what I had experienced and the hopes and dreams that I had for my child was when I really got honest about the work. It was like, okay, we can't, I, I love this little being so much and I just want so much more for him and I don't know how to get there. And so I became really clear about, let me figure out what this work is, not just in therapy, but also through prayer and surrender to God. I mean, if, if I'm not going to be married to his father, what does it look like to have a happy, healthy family, co-parenting, whatever the dynamic is, what do I need to do for him to live a life where he feels loved and valued and seen and supported? And that really changed everything for me. It was such an eye-opening moment is just becoming his mom. I was like, okay, we got to get, we got to get rid of all this ugly stuff here. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And then what's also true that can be hard for people like us is to realize he'll go on his same journey. He'll read his mum's book oh, yeah. and do that same work and come back to his mum and say, here's what hurt and here's what didn't wasn't enough. And oh, we already talk about his therapy bill. We laugh about yeah. it. He, he, it's so funny because we laugh about mm-hmm. it. And I'm like, I know when you, I tell him all the time, don't go to your therapist telling them that I didn't show up for your band concert because you told me not to come. You know, I just like big jabs at him all the you're, you're time. Pre-empting. I'm like, you're don't pre-empting. you don't you try to tell your therapist you got plenty of material. Don't try to put it this on me this time because you told me not to come. And he's like, oh, Mom, we'll have other things to talk about, and I and I expect <laughs> oh, him to because the, the yeah. idea is not perfection, right? It's That's right. Like That's right. We're all imperfect, and so That's really right. disrupting even this idea of myself that I'm going to be a perfect mom that right. has been liberating as well it's like i'm doing the best that i can but i know he'll have to do he'll have to do his own repairing because i'm doing what i can with what i have You know, Felicia, you're a first-time guest on the show. I'm sure the reputation has gotten to your ears. Yes. Uh, the infamous and somewhat terrifying uh, gauntlet of anxiety questions. Uh, I'm just going to grab a random few here. Let's begin, since you write so much about family of origin, let's do a couple on family of origin. Okay. Give us a, give us a family trait that has really helped you <laughs> and give us one that's gotten in the way. Okay. Oh, goodness. This one is going to bite me, but I think independence is my answer to both. I really have to be honest with you about that. My my mother and my family in general is like obnoxiously independent, and she taught us children to be the exact same way. And it's one of the qualities that I love the most about myself is that I'm super independent and I don't wait for the approval of people or I I don't, you know, wait for agreement or unison. I'm very confident in myself to move forward. But at the same time, I'm becoming even more day by day aware of how potentially harmful it is to be so fiercely independent. So Mm. I think it helps me to be able to move, especially in a leadership context at work and on projects like my book, to be able to move forward independently without waiting for, you know, a chorus of people. But then it also kind of stresses me out because I don't run ideas by other people. And I also know it can lead to becoming pride and idolatry and ego and isolation. Um, It can be a bad thing. So that Mm. definitely gets in the way sometimes as well. Very good. This season, we're doing some work on what we call permitted emotions. We look back in when we were raised and we just ask the simple question, what's one emotion that was permitted in the household? And what's one emotion that was not permitted in the household? Mm. That's a, that's a, that's a really hard one. (laughs) I think what was permitted in the house definitely was gratitude and, and happiness, right? Like, We, if we're nothing else, especially coming from uh, a home that had less than enough in terms of resources and finances, there was, you know, we were happy for anything. McDonald's to get ice cream cones. It's like, okay, we got to be happy. We're going to be grateful. And on the flip side, emotions that were not really necessarily allowed, I wouldn't say allowed, but welcomed in the household were just um, discontent. You know, Mm. it was it was really challenging to express 
dissatisfaction or discontent, especially when we were working so hard to have whatever it is that we did have, you know, just it, the expectation that you should always be grateful. And so when you weren't grateful, when you were discontent, it was like an absolute no-no uh, mm. because there's so much sacrifice and things could be so much worse, right? So who are you to be un- unhappy or unsatisfied with whatever the circumstances were? Yeah. We all battle an inner critic, you know, the the little voice in our head that says we should be better or more or, or different. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to share one of the messages of your inner critic. Mm. Uh, what does it tell you when you don't measure up? Oh, goodness, man. I think my inner critic could literally be the spokesperson for imposter syndrome. I'm sure you've okay. probably heard that time and time yeah. again. But, yeah. you know... Interesting, though, from a PhD in communications. That's Oh, I think... And it makes perfect to me, it makes perfect sense. But my inner critic is always saying you don't belong here. You know, it's Mm. it's always saying you do not Mm. belong here. And to me, that makes sense for a cycle breaker or someone who's the first, because it Mm. it literally is like being in the woods on a beaten path. And you just decide one day to go off of that path. And Mm. that beaten path tells you that you're safe, that People can find you if you get lost, that you're going in the right direction. But once you start to like push away the sticks and leaves and you start going off that path, everything in you is like, am I going the right way? Am I supposed to be here? Is this safe? I don't think so. I'm looking back at the path where all these people have gone and I could just easily go that way. (laughs) And so you're constantly saying, I don't belong. I don't belong here in the wilderness. That's what it, my inner critic is always like, girl, you're in the wild. Go back to safety. (laughs) Go play small (laughs) because you'll be safe there because other people have done it before. Yeah. So I think our inner critic speaks against the gospel. So I found it helpful to try to dent it with the gospel. So I wonder if you'd fill in the gap. Yeah. The, The sentence is, what if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? Yeah. What would the blank be for you? What? Say it one more time. Yeah. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? So for me, it would be forgiving or loving. Mm. I think that's how I would answer it. I think if I could tweak it just a little bit, it might be, what if I was as confident in myself as God is? And Mm, I think that that helps me a lot when that inner critic comes in, because I'm constantly reminding myself that God selected you and put you in this room. He put you on this path. He put you in this, whatever your wilderness is. God opened that door for you to be the professor or the center director or being on the podcast, whatever it is, you know? And if God placed you in this circumstance, he is 100% and more confident in your ability. He's qualified you, you're equipped, you know? And so I, kind of have to remind myself that if God has called me to it, of course, I just need to, like I told you in the beginning, fake it. <laughs> like I'm in a room with Michelle Obama. I'm trying to own it here because somehow <laughs> other people want to be here. They're not here, but I'm here. So I will fake it until I leave the room and then I have a breakdown. <laughs> I love it. All right. The last question, you know, John says in First John 4, that perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. Um, when in your life lately have you felt most fully and completely loved? Oh, 
When do I feel love? That's a really good question. That's a that's a good question. I think it's such a cheesy answer. Um, but as a mom, especially as a single working mom, I feel so much love when I am reunited with my son after we've had a break, like when we are not together for a while or even my my dog. <laughs> you know, when you like leave the house and you come home and my son is waiting at the door or my dog is just waiting there like, oh, my like life is complete now that you're back here. Yeah. It's it reminds me of when he was so little and you pick him up from pre-K and they're like, mom, and they just run at you from across. I mean, kids will like run in front of trucks to get to their parents and yeah. you just feel like the best person in the world in that moment because they just have been waiting for you. So I think yeah, now when he's spending the night with his friends or when he goes home, like he will soon to spend time with his dad. Cause we co-parent and we're reunited when he gets off the plane. Now he like runs down, even as he's getting older, he still runs down. It's like mom. And I do feel really loved at that moment. <laughs> hey, Dr. Felicia Harris, the book is first in the family, biblical truths for cycle breakers. Yeah. I know I've got a lot of systems theory nerds who listen to this show. What a great book to help you give you a path to dig into family of origin, yeah. make sense of the way you see the world. Alicia, thanks so much. What a delight. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show and sharing your heart and your brain with us. Thanks so it's much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 